The journey to a smoke-free future can be a long and winding road. But if you're ready for a change, consider taking Zinn for a spin. Zinn nicotine pouches offer a fresh way to discover your nicotine satisfaction. Anywhere, anytime. No smoke, no spit, and no lingering odor. Get in gear with the Zinn 10 Challenge and enjoy 10 smoke-free, spit-free days for just $5.95. Order online and start your new journey today. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. School of Humans. On September 30, 1994, 20-year-old Jared Green was scared. His sister Shannon, who was three years older than Jared, remembered her baby brother as the kid who was always laughing and smiling, who had a mischievous sense of humor. Jared's middle name was Devlin, so they called him the Little Devil. I, I've used this expression before, like he was like light and life and laughter. He was always making jokes. He had a really infectious laugh. He was always getting into trouble. My mom called him like a little monkey because he was climbing on stuff <laughs> when we were kids and he jumped off the top bunk bed, knocked himself out. Like he was constantly doing silly stuff like that. If there was mischief to be had, he was gonna be in the middle of it. But his humor was always fun, never cruel. Shannon said that Jared was always a little bit naive. He was someone who always trusted others and someone who would do anything for a friend. Jared had a high IQ, Shannon said genius level. So he was always smart, but as a kid, he struggled to focus. Jared was diagnosed with ADHD, so their parents put him on Ritalin. Though the Ritalin did seem to help Jared focus at school, his parents believed that it was stunning Jared's physical growth, which meant that Jared was always small for his age. So he ended up being held back a year at school. Even though Jared eventually caught up physically and grew to be almost six feet tall, he always had kind of a slim build. In every picture I see of Jared, he's got this boyish face. He's got brownish blonde hair and blue-green eyes. 
He's smiling in every single picture, which goes with what Shannon said about him. She said he was full of life and always the life of the party. Just a joy to be around. Jared graduated from Searcy High School in 1993. And because he'd been held back a year, when he graduated, he was actually 19 years old. He continued to live at home after high school. Eventually, he moved out of his parents' house and started junior college in BB. He got a job at the Walmart Distribution Center. But then, in 1994, Jared's problems started. He started using methamphetamines, and his family says that within a shockingly short period of time, Jared was showing signs of serious addiction. Jared's dark time began sometime after fall semester started at college. By the beginning of October, it was all over. I'm Katherine Townsend. Over the past five years of making my true crime podcast, Helen Gone, I've learned that there's no such thing as a small town where murder never happens. I have received hundreds of messages from people from all around the country asking for help with an unsolved murder that's affected them, their families, and their communities. If you have a case you'd like me and my team to look into, you can reach out to us at our Helen Gone murder line at 678-744-6145. That's When I announced this new podcast, multiple listeners reached out to me about Jared Green's case. Anders calling in for uh, justice for Jared. Uh, You might have heard podcasts before, but uh, there was a group of us that all ran. I'm calling in about the case of Jared Green. He disappeared from Searcy, Arkansas on September 30th, 1994. I had actually heard from Jared's sister, Shannon Green, a while back, and I knew this was one of the first cases that I wanted to cover. At first, Jared's family wasn't exactly sure what was going on with him. Shannon said they were pretty clueless because she said her parents had never dealt with that type of drug abuse before. They did not know the signs to look for, and they didn't know how quickly this kind of thing could escalate or how dangerous it was. Not long after he graduated high school, when he was about 19, and we that's when my mom found... Like, I think she found pot in his pants pocket that she was doing the laundry, and she found it. And it was a really fast kind of um, transformation. When he started doing meth, that was when Mm. it was this deep decline. And the change in him became just obvious. I dropped out of grad school and moved back home um, because my parents were kind of like, we don't know what to do. And I was so upset about it. We were... He was over 18. We couldn't force him into a rehab. It, it was terrible. We didn't know the extent really of what. We were just so naive. I, I've said this before, but like my parents, you know, we were not exposed to anything. My parents, they were, they went to church. We didn't, we didn't yeah. drink. We didn't swear. We didn't, you know, there was all 
this very kind of sheltered life. We didn't even know what was happening. We certainly had no idea of the depth of the corruption and the drug scene in Cersei. We had no idea about that at the time. In 1994, Jared was living at home, working at the Walmart distribution center, and going to school. He quit his job at Walmart. Shannon said that at first, his family thought this was because his job was interfering with school. But the truth was that Jared was using drugs and had gotten much more heavily into them. Jared moved out of his parents' house and in with a guy who lived down the street from his family. The apartment that he moved into was across the hall from a guy named Brandon Wheeler. Now, Brandon Wheeler was someone Jared knew from high school. Living with Brandon Wheeler was his roommate, Robert Webb. In 1994, Robert Webb was turning 18 years old and still a senior at Searcy High School. Jared, Robert, and Brandon all started hanging out. Brandon Wheeler was a big guy. He was white, around 200 pounds, and pretty stocky. Robert Webb was pretty much his physical opposite, a black male and much smaller, about 5'1 and around 135 pounds. By the way, in case it's not obvious, I'm giving physical descriptions of these guys because they will become very important later when it becomes clear that some of the people in this case are using multiple aliases. These guys were all young, but they were already moving into drug dealing and police suspected that Brandon and Robert were dealing drugs for some very dangerous people. Brandon was always, like, he wasn't popular in school. He was, everybody thought he was kind of odd. I had no idea until really when he moved into that apartment that, that like, Brandon was involved in the drugs. And we still, we still didn't know that what the drugs were. Like, this was still a, it was still a mystery <laughs> at this point to us. My parents really still didn't know. I did, definitely didn't know what was going on. He didn't tell us. You know, he would, he would hint at some things. He would comment about things. And you know, my mom would try to talk to him, but he, he didn't want to tell us what was yeah. happening. Jared and his roommate got evicted from their apartment, so he moved back home with his parents. Robert and Brandon ended up renting another house together in Searcy, North Little Rock. Brandon's parents lived in Searcy, a few miles from where he was renting the house with Robert. It's important to remember that when I talk to Shannon about her brother, she's telling this story in hindsight, so it comes in pieces. But one thing she does remember vividly is how fast this all happened. She says that once Jared started hanging out with Brandon Wheeler and Robert Webb, his descent into drug use was quick and extreme. What she didn't know at the time was that Jared had allegedly moved from just using drugs into helping Robert and Brandon deal them. She later heard that he might have been possibly involved in some other way, either in selling or possibly cooking. What I've heard is that Brandon and Rob claimed that he owed them $7,500 and that they would never let him pay them back. Like that he keep, I do remember him saying that he could never be free because they would never let him be free. And I don't know what the money was for. I assume it was probably drugs that he was supposed to have either sold or transported for him. I don't think he actually, I don't think he ever dealt. I don't know for sure. I, I, all I know is what, you know, what people around him have told me that, that he didn't, but he was connected with people that were. And I think that someone had mentioned that they were trying to introduce him because he was smart, that they thought, well, he could be a cook. And so that 
that is you know one of the things that I've heard um, that that that's kind of what they were planning for him. When Jared came back home after getting evicted, Shannon said her brother had lost lots of weight. She also said he was extremely paranoid. She said that her brother was scared. Shannon describes how her brother's life started to fall apart once he moved back home. We could tell he was really, like he had lost a ton of weight. He didn't look right. He was extremely paranoid. I remember that one time I was on my way out the door to church. I had got a runner in my hose and I had to turn back into the house to go go change. And I came in, like just busted the front door and Jared was standing at the top of the staircase with a gun drawn and like shaking because he was paranoid about somebody coming in after him. And so there was a lot of that where we, we were all kind of on tender hooks, like we didn't know where he was. He would go out and stay out until all hours. And I, I, you know, I stopped sleeping because if I didn't hear our garage door open, I couldn't be comfortable because I was afraid something was going to happen. Like we didn't know what he was into. We didn't know what he was doing. Now, one of the most important questions in this case that came up later was how much of this paranoia was just the paranoia that goes with drug use, especially meth use, and how much might have been legitimate fear for his life. That will become crucial later. Jared asked his parents for help. He told them that he needed to get out of town. Then Shannon said Jared did leave town for about a week. Now, where Jared went during that time remains a mystery, and it's something we're going to revisit. Shannon believed he was going to see about a job in Tennessee. But then, after Jared came back, Shannon put a timeline together with her dad to try and track his movement. And later, Shannon's dad found receipts from Jared's trip. They found out he had actually been gone longer, close to two weeks, and that he had actually visited Houston, Texas, and Tuckerman, Arkansas to see family. Jared had been around to several places they never knew about. And then one day... Out of the blue, Jared said he was coming home. At that point, Shannon said he seemed to be more relaxed. He said that everything was okay. He had been telling family and friends that he owed Brandon and Robert a lot of money. But after he came home, according to Shannon, it seemed like whatever issues he had with these guys, he had worked them out and made things right. So Jared returned home after that trip out of town. But he wouldn't be home for long. Hey, y'all, it's Catherine. As you know from Helen Gone, crime can happen to anyone at any time. When it comes to home security, your best line of defense is your vigilance and preparation. That's why I recommend Simply Safe Home Security. Obviously, we cannot control everything that happens out there in the world, but when I'm in my own home, I feel very reassured by the fact that I have a home security system. And Simply Safe is affordable, easy to use, and crucially, it's easy to get started with and then build on later as you need more functionality. They have a huge variety of indoor and outdoor cameras. It's backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than a dollar a day with no contracts and a 60-day money-back guarantee. Get 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect Monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com slash Helen gone. That's simplysafe.com slash Helen gone. There's no safe like Simply Safe. 
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a Challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferrer, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and Challenge All-Star. And speaking of All-Stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the challenge gods have answered our prayers and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of Challenge Champion. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So this brings us to September 30th, 1994, the day Jared disappeared. On that day, Shannon said Jared woke up at around 8.30 a.m. and left the house for a while. He came home later that afternoon and told his family that he had been shooting skeet, which Shannon said would not have been out of character for him. He brought back the skeet shooting thrower and the rifle that he used and left them at home. Then Jared made some phone calls that afternoon. He left the house at around 8 p.m. that night. He told his parents that he was meeting a friend at the Searcy Country Club. Then he walked out the door, out the driveway, got into his car and drove off. That was the last time Jared's family ever saw him alive. Shannon later told reporters she has this flashback of Jared walking in front of a TV and walking out of the house. But she said that she was working at Hastings, a local grocery store at the time. So she can't really remember whether the night she's thinking of was that night or possibly another night. Either way, Jared never came home. For the next few days, his parents kind of agonized over what action to take because they were torn. They wanted their son home, but they were also worried that calling the police could bring Jared unwanted attention, maybe get him into trouble if it turned out he was holed up somewhere involved in drugs. And at that stage in Jared's life, it was not uncommon for Jared to leave for a couple days, possibly to go stay with friends. But when days went by and his family never heard from him, they began to suspect that something was very wrong. As you may know from listening to this podcast, one theme that I go over over and over again is the timeline. And in the beginning, police had very little information about Jared's timeline. 
We do know that he was planning on meeting his girlfriend that night. Now, his girlfriend's name is also Shannon. So to avoid confusion with Shannon, Jared's sister, we're going to refer to his sister as Shannon and Jared's girlfriend as S. Jared's girlfriend later told police that she did talk to Jared that night. She said when they spoke on the phone, Jared seemed irrational and he wanted his girlfriend to leave town with him. She said he was disturbed because he was acting really out of character. So she told him that she was going out with some girlfriends instead. She said that Jared was super upset, crying, and that after she didn't go with him that night, she never saw or heard from him again. Over the next few days, Jared's family began to get more and more worried. So he he went missing on September 30th, and he was gone. And like I said before, like he was, he would go for overnight, go to Jonesboro, whatever, go stay with his girlfriend. He wouldn't come home. He was, you know, 20 years old, so he wouldn't always tell us. He would, you know, he would usually call or he'd usually show up home the next day. So when he didn't come home the first night, we weren't, we were scared because of what we knew was what was going on, but we weren't panicked. Sure. <laughs> but when, when, you know, the next evening, we don't haven't heard from him, and I I was working at Hastings at the time, and his girlfriend, and she hadn't seen or heard from him, and so that really that was really scary. It's like okay, wait a minute, something is not right. So then we started calling people. You know, we called the Wheelers, <laughs> called Brandon, and no, oh, we have you know he was like, no, we haven't seen Jared. Don't have any idea where he's at. The normal panic that you go through when someone goes missing. You're like, okay, where could they be? Don't overreact. This is you know he's he's an adult. He's probably somewhere. But when we still hadn't heard on that third day, the panic had started to set in. My parents were super scared because they didn't want to get Jared in trouble. They were Mm -hmm. afraid that if they told the police what he was involved with, he would go to jail. And so they were debating, you know, what do we do? (laughs) How do we best help our son? Do we call the police? You know, they were just scared to death. Then a few days after Jared went missing, one of his friends, a guy named Mitchell Johnson, told Jared's family that he saw Jared's car at the Walmart Supercenter. Jared's family had no idea that his car was sitting abandoned at the Walmart Supercenter and that it had been there for days. Mitchell said that when he saw the car, he pulled up and waited 20 or 30 minutes to see if Jared would come out. But he said when Jared didn't come out, Mitchell left the parking lot. On October 5th, another friend of Jared's, a guy named Jason, came to the family home. Now, Jason knew Jared from high school. Jared had started going to Searcy High in the eighth grade. So he and Jason became friends. They also hung out with another guy named Greg. According to the case file, in the fall of 1994, Jason was going to college in Jonesboro. He lived with he and Jason's mutual friend, Greg. And during that time period, they all hung out together. Jared would come over to their house and he would hang out with Jason and Greg pretty regularly. Jared shared with Jason the fact that he was scared of Brandon Wheeler and Rob Webb. He said he owed a lot of money to Brandon Wheeler. Now, I have not seen the entire case file because technically this is still an open case. However, Jared's sister, Shannon, was able to get some of the investigators notes and she has shared some of those with me. So those are invaluable because I can see some of the steps that police took and how frustrated some of the investigators were when they were trying to make progress on this case. The investigators at the time talked to some of Jared's friends, and what they figured out was 
that Jared was telling people Brandon Wheeler gave him a pretty large quantity of meth, maybe around a kilo, to sell. But something went wrong with this drug deal. Either the sale got messed up or Jared did some of his own supply. Whatever the cause, the end result was that Jared owed Brandon Wheeler around $7,500 or $8,000. And Jared couldn't pay it back. Jason said that Jared owed him money, too. He said that he had given Jared around $600 so that Jared could score some drugs a few weeks earlier. But right before Jared went missing, Jason said he needed his money back. So this is interesting because we have yet another person who potentially was in a monetary dispute with the victim at around the time he went missing. Jason told Shannon, Jared's sister, that he started calling Jared and asking him for his money back. He said Jared didn't respond. And there was another crucial fact here, which is that when Jared borrowed that money from Jason, Jared gave Jason his gun as collateral, and Jason was supposed to hold the gun for him. After weeks of not hearing back from Jared, Jason, who was still holding Jared's gun, said he got a call out of the blue on September 30th, the night Jared went missing. Jason was the friend who Jared met at the Searcy Country Club. Jason later told police that he went to meet Jared at the country club because he was concerned about his friend, but also, understandably, he said he wanted to get his money back. At first, it seems like he thought Jared had called him because he wanted to return the money. They arranged to meet at the country club on September 30th, somewhere between around 9 and 10.30 p.m. But Jason told police that after he showed up, Jared admitted he didn't have his money. But he did tell Jason he needed his gun back. Jason said Jared was scared that night. He said Jared told him he was going to meet Brandon Wheeler. He knew that he owed Brandon money, and he hoped to straighten the situation out. But Jared told him he wanted that gun for protection. So Jason told police that he agreed to that. He said that he gave Jared's gun back to him and kept Jared's wallet as collateral. Jason said he continued to reach out to Jared over the next few days. Jason explained to Shannon that Jared told him that if he didn't have his money back in a certain amount of time, that he, Jason, could go to Jared's parents and ask them for the money. So he said on October 5th, that's what he did. He showed up at Jared's family home and went in to talk to his parents about getting that money back. That same day was when Jared's father got the tip about Jared's car being in the Walmart parking lot. So Jared's father drove over there to Walmart. And that's when he found Jared's car. The door was unlocked, and there was no sign of foul play. But Shannon said her family knew immediately Jared never would have left his car just unlocked like that and walked away from it voluntarily. Over the next few days, Shannon said she and her family looked everywhere for Jared. They called all of his friends, they called the Arkansas State Police, and they called the FBI. It turned out they had a relative who was in the Drug Enforcement Administration, the DEA. He told them the DEA authorities would not be looking very hard at a 20-year-old who was a legal adult and had the right to voluntarily disappear. And unspoken in all this is the fact that because Jared was known to have a drug habit, that also played a role in the authorities' decision not to look for him as hard as they would perhaps some others. Shannon described, while Jared sometimes would drop out of sight for a couple days, he would never sever contact with his entire family. 
Jared also took pride in his car, so it made no sense the car would be left there abandoned like that. That is not like him. He did not walk away from that car, didn't leave it there like that. But of course, that's when the police were like, whatever, you know, they really didn't. That's when the non-investigation started. Just hearing the set of circumstances in which Jared's car was found, my instinct as an investigator is that someone probably staged this crime scene, that someone else drove the car there. Otherwise, why would Jared's keys be left there under the seat of the car? Do you think the car was driven there by somebody else? I think so. Um, Because, number one, my brother would never, ever leave his windows down, his sunroof open. Ever. He didn't even do that in front of our house. Certainly wasn't going to do that in the thing, but we don't know. Whoever, had, whoever did that wanted, that wanted that car to be found in that parking lot. Yeah, for certain. Or they wanted somebody to take it. If Jared met someone in that parking lot and got into a car with them, either voluntarily or otherwise, the keys would not be stashed under the seat like that. They would be on him. And then after that, even stranger things started to happen. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with a king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a Challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferrer, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and Challenge All-Star. And speaking of All-Stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the challenge gods have answered our prayers and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of Challenge Champion. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. 
Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. After Jared's family found his car, weird things started happening. On October 9th, Shannon's family got a strange phone call. A few days after Jared went missing, someone called the police and pretended to be Shannon and Jared's dad. Shannon says the mystery caller told police they should stop investigating Jared's disappearance. This mystery caller said the family wanted to try and investigate on their own. Shannon said this never happened. She stresses her father never gave up on looking for Jared. She said her dad was constantly calling police to ask for case updates, as well as bringing in any new evidence that he found. By this point in the investigation, according to Shannon, pretty much everyone police talked to about the case mentioned these two names, Brandon Wheeler and Robert Webb. Police talked to Greg, Jason, and Jared's mutual friend. He admitted that the story police had heard from some other people was true. He said he and Jared had gotten a kilo of meth from Robert and Brandon. Also, the name Mitchell Johnson came up again. Now remember, he was the guy who found Jared's car abandoned at the Walmart Supercenter. He told police that he had taken Jared to North Little Rock, supposedly to pick up a large quantity of drugs. He also said that he knew about the debt. Jared had talked to his dad about Brandon Wheeler and Robert Webb. So Jared's dad told police the same thing a lot of other people said, that Jared was scared of these guys. He said Jared had told them a sort of cautionary tale about another guy who owed Brandon and Robert a lot of money and couldn't pay it back. Jared told his father that this person who owed the debt had been kidnapped and blindfolded and taken to a remote location and basically been beaten and tortured. Eventually, Jared said that person was released. I've gone through some of the case file documents that Shannon shared with me. I can't share everything, but with her permission, I'm going to go back through the events that followed September 30th, 1994, the day when Jared went missing. I would invite Helen Gone listeners to listen closely because there are a lot of names here. We're going to move away from Jared and his family and go to North Little Rock to try and figure out what was going on with Brandon Wheeler and Robert Webb around the time when Jared went missing. On November 9th, 1994, I can see from these case file notes that one of the officers from the task force was interviewing people connected to the house that Brandon and Rob were renting together in North Little Rock. In my opinion, I think that that house is key to this case. The officers talked to a woman named Becky Alston, the housekeeper. Now, what she had to say was very interesting to me because, as many of you might know, I really think that people who clean someone's houses are definitely clued into a lot of their darkest secrets. Becky had only been doing that job for a couple months. Robert Webb and Brandon Wheeler rented that house from their landlord, a guy named Larry Williford in North Little Rock. They asked their landlord if he knew of any good housekeepers, and he was the one who recommended Becky. At the time, this seemed like a win-win for both parties. The guys got a good housekeeper at a very reasonable rate, and for the landlord, it's probably reassuring. A trusted housekeeper can kind of keep an eye on the property and also make sure 
that two young guys living there won't completely trash it. Becky charged $75 a week, and she said Brandon and Robert would always give her a tip. Typically, they would give her $100, always in cash. Becky said she had a good relationship with these guys. She said Brandon and Robert were always very cordial and nice to her. But they were in an odd situation. Because two very young guys, remember Robert Webb was only 17 or 18 years old, a senior in high school at the time when all this was going down, with a pile of cash would raise a lot of red flags. The story that Brandon and Robert told their landlord and Becky was that they were from wealthy families and they were studying to be lawyers in Little Rock. But then, of course, Becky started to notice that Robert and Brandon never seemed to go to class. So she kind of was figuring out that their cover story wasn't true. This is all, by the way, pretty much verbatim from the investigative report from the case file. It was around August or September of 1994 when Becky said things were starting to change. She said that there was a crawl space in the upstairs area where the guys would throw dirty clothes in. She said sometimes she would get into that crawl space to pull the dirty clothes out so she could try to wash them. And when she did, she found a stash of guns up there. She told police during this time she was noticing more and more guns, which the guys were obsessed with. Apparently, they would sit around and watch videos of guns and people shooting all the time. And not just hunting guns. These were things like Uzis and semi-automatic weapons, including one that Becky said had a silencer. Now, we don't know what they were doing with these guns or whose they were or if they were planning to sell them or keep them for that matter. But just using common sense, if a gun has a silencer on it, that's not something these guys are going to use for deer hunting. Becky said that they always dressed very nicely, not like college kids. They were wearing suits that looked expensive. She said they would always carry concealed weapons when they left the house. There's something else that's a little bit unusual here. Becky said that she was the one who paid Brandon and Robert's utility bills for them. The electricity bill, the phone bill, the water, etc. Becky said typically the guys would give her cash and she would make the actual payment. From the interview with Becky, it seems like around September, Robert and Brandon started to become a little bit quieter, a little bit more paranoid. Both Robert and Brandon had cell phones. Remember, this was back in 1994. That was also something that was very unusual for a teenager to have at the time. They also had a landline phone. When Becky was discussing how paranoid they were with the police, she said every time the landline would ring, they would look at the caller ID and then never answer. Then they would call the person back and demand to know who they were and why they were calling. It was just a very paranoid atmosphere. Then another really odd thing happened. In late September of 1994, Becky said that she was cleaning the apartment and she saw a California driver's license with the name of Lance Wells, but it had Robert Webb's picture on it. She said when she went back a few days later, the ID was gone. At this point, I should back up and we should explain a little bit more about what was going on at the time with methamphetamines in the state of Arkansas. At the time, meth was exploding in Arkansas and around the South and the rest of the country. A lot of the meth at the time was coming from these super labs in California. They were controlled mainly by the Mexican cartel. In the early 90s, the drug selling operations in Arkansas were evolving. According to a report by the Department of Justice, 
Instead of drug dealers using 18 wheelers and these really elaborate operations, they started using a lot of regular passenger cars that had hidden traps. They would put the drugs in gas tanks or they would have these hidden compartments. Then the dealers would use regular people to transport the drugs from California to Arkansas and beyond. So thinking about these scenarios, Brandon and Robert would definitely fit the bill. Two young, ordinary looking guys who probably looked like they were on a road trip would be the perfect people to carry these drugs. When police were putting all this together, they showed Becky a picture of Jared Green and Becky said she recognized Jared. She said she had seen him there in the apartment with Brandon and Robert at least three different times. Becky said when Jared was at the house, and this is an exact quote from the statement, she said she, quote, observed numerous needle marks on his arm and stated that he was wearing blue jeans and a short sleeve shirt. He appeared to be very strung out and looking bad, end quote. So we know that Jared Green owed Brandon Wheeler and Robert Webb money, potentially a lot of money, and that these guys, according to police, were drug dealers. But again, we have to go past local rumor and we have to figure out exactly what everyone was doing around the time Jared Green went missing. And this is where the timeline gets very interesting. On September 22nd, just over a week before Jared Green went missing, Becky said Brandon Wheeler told her he and Robert Webb were leaving town that they were going to check on Robert's father, who they told her lived in California and was really sick. Then, on the 27th of September, Robert contacted Becky again. He said they were back in Little Rock. He asked if she could come over and clean the house on the 28th of September. She went there on the 28th and said neither Brandon nor Robert were home at the time. On September 29th at around 6 a.m., Becky said she got another call, this time from Brandon Wheeler. He asked her to take care of their two dogs. Becky said that this was not uncommon. Brandon Wheeler and Robert Webb had two large dogs. When they were out of town, they kept their dogs in the garage. Normally, when the guys would take a trip, which normally they told her was to California, they would ask her to come in and give food and water to their dogs. So presumably, if they're asking Becky to feed their animals on September 29th, they were making a plan to leave town. Of course, we know September 30th, the next day, is when Jared went missing. And after that day, Becky said she never saw Brandon or Robert again. Becky also described the atmosphere at that house. She said she would see young women there a lot. Young women who appeared to be from around late teens to early 20s. She said the guys would sit around and watch videos about guns, which they seemed to be obsessed with, and that she saw other evidence of what could reasonably be construed to be drug use. Things like alcohol pads with drops of blood on them. Police also talked to Larry Wilford. Robert and Brandon's landlord. The landlord said that when they wanted to become tenants, they gave him a similar story to the one they'd given Becky. They said they went to the University of Arkansas at Little Rock, that they were going to be lawyers. They were from San Francisco, California, and they had wealthy parents. They wanted to pay in cash. Larry agreed to rent these guys the house for $1,100 a month plus a $1,500 deposit. He did get a little suspicious because when he went to do the tenancy agreement, he wanted to talk to Robert's parents. He said when he drew up the tenancy agreement, he faxed it over to someone who he was talking to, someone who was claiming to be Robert Webb's father. But the landlord said when he called that person back later with additional questions, he said he was never able to contact them again. So, of course, we can't be sure, but it seems almost certain this was not Robert Webb's father. Much more probably, 
it was either Brandon or Robert or one of their friends pretending to be his dad so they could get into this apartment. I found something else in the report that may or may not be interesting, but I think is worth bringing up. So the landlord said Brandon and Robert paid $2,000 to have the pool repaired. They also had a satellite dish installed for around $2,200. They only ended up staying at the property for a few months. So I think the fact that they put all this money into it right away maybe should have been a red flag. The landlord said that things seemed to be going well for a while until late September. That's when the electricity got cut off because Brandon and Robert hadn't paid their bill. Now, around that point, the landlord told police once the electricity got cut off and because they were also late in rent at that point, he started to get more concerned. In the first week of October, Brandon and Robert came to the landlord's house. They gave him a cashier's check for $2,200 and said that was to cover the rent for October and November. But at that point, something seemed to have unsettled the landlord, and he told them he was not going to rent to them anymore. The next time the landlord said that he heard from Robert was on October 21st, when Robert called the landlord to say that he and Brandon were moving out and returning to California. Then, the very next day, on October 22nd, 1994, police raced to the scene of that rental house. Because it turned out that just hours after Robert and Brandon were evicted, the house was on fire. We'll have more on Jared Green's case next time on Helen Gone Murderline. Helen Gone Murderline is a production of School of Humans and iHeart Podcast. It's written and narrated by me, Katherine Townsend, and produced by Gabby Watts. Music is by Ben Soli. And this episode was scored and mixed by Miranda Hawkins. Executive producers are Virginia Prescott, Brandon Barr, and Elsie Crowley. If you have a case you'd like me and my team to look into, you can reach out to us at our Helen Gone Murder line at 678-744-6145. That's 678-744-6145. School of Humans. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. 
to the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.